You've probably noticed it. Here on CNA Newsroom, we haven't talked a whole lot in the past few weeks about the coronavirus pandemic. I think part of the reason for that is obvious. While the pandemic is still a huge, huge news story, many people's minds have been occupied these last few weeks with the protests and calls for racial justice and reform that have rocked the country and the world. But again, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. A pandemic that has cost millions of people their jobs and tragically hundreds of thousands of people their lives. Here on the podcast, we've brought you the stories of Catholics, clerics, and lay people who are working to cooperate with God's grace in the midst of the pandemic. But there's one group of people that we haven't yet talked a whole lot about, and that's healthcare workers and scientists. Arguably the biggest story in 2020, a year with a lot of big stories, is a science story. All around the world, scientists are working on a vaccine for COVID-19. The man leading the vaccine development in the U.S. is this guy, Dr. Francis Collins. I'm praying for the researchers. I pray for the scientists right now that are working on trying to speed up the development of this vaccine. And we are all hands on deck, full out, to try to accelerate that pathway. Dr. Collins is the director of the National Institutes of Health. You know that guy that's always on TV talking about coronavirus, Dr. Fauci? Well, Dr. Collins is his boss. The work that the NIH is doing with coronavirus vaccines is complicated, as you'd expect. But essentially, it boils down to a partnership between the NIH and several big pharmaceutical companies that are all working to develop a vaccine. You might have heard Dr. Collins on TV or on the radio talking about that coronavirus vaccine development. But one thing you might not have heard about him is that he's a Christian. I pray for wisdom, for guidance. I pray for forgiveness, for making mistakes along the way. I've been involved in so many large-scale science projects over the last 30 years, from finding the gene for cystic fibrosis to the Genome Project to cancer immunotherapy and now to this and somehow the burden of responsibility here that we can't afford to lose a day of progress in finding treatments and a vaccine and better tests it's just there every minute dr collins said that when he's not working these days which granted is not very often he is finding solace in prayer and reading the psalms it's still hard to say when a vaccine will be available for the coronavirus. But one thing is clear, NIH scientists are working flat out as fast as they can. And here I am in my home office, but barely ever going outside, probably working 110 hours a week, just trying to do everything I can to marshal all those resources and praying to God that they are used wisely to bring hope and healing. So yeah, all of that, and I guess in there also is praying for some kind of ability to understand what we can learn from this. Today, Dr. Collins is pretty outspoken about his Christian faith. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. He's even a member of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Pope Benedict XVI appointed him to that in 2009. I think every scientist at some point during their career, maybe many points, has this moment of awe when you when you realize something or maybe even discover yourself uh, and realize this is beautiful. This is complicated and it's elegant. 
maybe you're a physicist or a, a student of physics and you realize there are these natural laws that govern the behavior of matter and energy and they're incredibly mathematically elegant and you can't help but go wow how did that happen and if that doesn't make you start to wonder about an author of the universe who must have been a pretty amazing mathematician then you haven't quite thought deeply enough you might be surprised to hear that for all his talk about faith dr collins was actually a pretty committed atheist for most of his younger years i didn't think deeply about that at all when i was admiring those equations <laughs> back in my uh, training years. What got him thinking about religion was C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, which he picked up at the age of 27. The big question that caught me up in the first chapter of Mere Christianity is the basis of morality. Why is there even such a thing as good and evil? And why do we think it matters? This is where I think the most strict atheists uh, find themselves in a real quandary because if they try to argue that our ideas about good and evil are solely driven by evolutionary pressures that have helped us survive, the ultimate consequence of that is that those are therefore uh, fictional uh, concepts that we've all been hoodwinked into imagining that there is such a thing as good and evil and we should stop paying attention to that and simply do whatever we please. And even the most ardent atheist has trouble with that conclusion. When President Obama nominated Dr. Collins as head of the NIH back in 2009, some people very loudly objected to the idea of a Christian leading the nation's biomedical research effort. But those voices have, for the most part, died down. I think for the most part, I've been well-treated by the scientific community. There are certainly those who are surprised, puzzled, uh, by how, how a scientist could also be a person of faith. But when you consider that really something like 30 to 40 percent of working scientists are people who have a belief in a personal God, I'm not that much of an outlier. It's just that most scientists keep that pretty private. Um, I have since writing that book called The Language of God 14 years ago, not been private because it's been a very public source of information and sometimes a source of discussion that you have somebody who has been willing to talk about science and faith in a very open fashion. So I don't know that anybody's too surprised anymore. Most people are aware of how I see these as harmonizable uh, worldviews. Dr. Collins had already done groundbreaking work as a scientist working on the Human Genome Project, which successfully mapped out the DNA that makes us, us. I recognized it was easier for me uh, to talk about my faith as somebody who had already had the occasion of becoming a full professor and then becoming somebody leading a major scientific project, the Genome Project. I, I was not as vulnerable, perhaps, to what might have happened if I had been so open about this in an earlier stage in my career. And so I do think particularly for trainees or junior faculty, there's a little bit more anxiety about how will I be viewed if I talk about my belief in God, which is really a terrible tragedy because as I tried to argue in language of God, these ought not to be seen as in any way conflicting. Well, Dr. Collins said that many of his scientific colleagues are also people of faith he said he often encounters young scientists today 
who are in the same position he was at 27, who haven't really begun to consider those big picture questions, the ones that science alone just can't answer. The mistake that scientists sometimes make is to rule out the possibility of anything else mattering. And that becomes not science, but scientism. And I do see there's still a fair amount of that around us. Let's at least consider for a minute questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? And is there a God? And how would you know if there was? And what is love about? And what is beauty all about? And why are we here? Those are not questions where the scientific approach is going to give you much of an answer at all. So, okay, let's let's think about whether it's worth, before you die, <laughs> giving a few minutes contemplation to that and seeing if there's any other direction from which answers might come other than the science lab. Coming up after the break, Catholics make up some of the best minds in science. So why do some people still think that the Catholic Church is opposed to science. Then, a chemist abandoned her faith in the name of science, but she tells us why she's a practicing Catholic today. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, CNA's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. Stick around. Friends, listeners, Twitter fans of Carl Bunderson, this is Carl's best work friend, Peter Zalasko. I'm the social media manager and arbiter of all food arguments at CNA. What can I say? My opinions on food are always correct. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom in your car, during lunch, or on the run, be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And then force your friends to do it as well. Seriously, come on. Invite them. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just open the podcast app on your phone, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click on the subscribe button. That way, you'll get our podcasts as soon as we post them. Now, back to the show. I'm going to go have some pie. In 1931, a scientific paper was published out of Belgium. The paper contained a radical new claim about the universe— not only is the universe expanding, the paper claimed, but that expansion began at a single point, what it called a primeval atom, or a cosmic egg, or what we now call a singularity. The theory seemed ludicrous to scientists at the time, including Albert Einstein. Most scientists had come to accept that the universe was expanding and not static a few years earlier, but the idea that the universe began in an extremely dense state and just exploded into being? Well, it was just too much. In fact, the name that we now associate with this theory was a pejorative, which a critic of the theory coined in order to mock the idea. It took a few years, but cosmologists began to accept this new theory, which today, of course, is known as the Big Bang. Who was the proponent of this radical new idea? Surprisingly, it was actually a Catholic priest, Father Georges Lemaitre. Lemaitre is one of the most consequential Catholic scientists in history, but he certainly isn't alone. Some of the greatest minds behind some of the greatest scientific discoveries were also Catholic. One of them would be Father Gregoire Mendel, who was the founder of modern genetics and a priest. Blaise Pascal, a very devout Catholic, also a famous uh, mathematician, inventor of the first calculating machine. Uh, Louis Pasteur, who 
is the person who uh, originated the pasteurization of milk and also vaccination. You have Alexander Fleming, the person who invented penicillin. You have the first woman awarded a Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine, Goethe Corey. And then you have contemporary scientists like Gerard Ertz, who won the 2007 Nobel Prize in, in chemistry, who is a Roman Catholic. Professor Brian Koblinka, who was the recipient of the 2012 Nobel Prize in chemistry and is a professor at Stanford. The list really does go on and on. So you have many ancient, prominent Catholic scientists, and you have many current living prominent Catholic scientists. So there's just no contradiction between excellence in science and excellence in being a Catholic. It's any more than, you know, being a great swimmer and being a great musician are opposed. Right? I mean, they're two different things, but they're not in opposition. Christopher Kayser is a Catholic author and philosophy professor at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., a few years ago, he published a book titled The Seven Big Myths About the Catholic Church. One of those myths is that the Catholic Church is opposed to science. You expect if the Catholic Church were opposed to science, you wouldn't expect to find scientists like Copernicus, who was a Catholic cleric, or scientists like Georges Lemaitre. Christopher said the Church as an institution has also been incredibly supportive of the sciences. The church was closely involved in the development of the earliest universities, and of course, Catholic universities today all host departments of science. Physics departments, chemistry departments, etc. So you certainly wouldn't expect that if the church were opposed to science. Then there's the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, an academic society established in 1936 by Pope Pius XI. Father Georges Lemaitre was one of the first elected members of the Academy, and he was also its president from 1960 until his death in 1966. And so it's quite an old institution and filled with prominent scientists. So where did this myth come from? I think it basically arises because people sometimes confuse the Catholic Church with certain kinds of Protestant fundamentalists who really do oppose science. So I think the confusion sometimes arises by conflating those two very different groups. It arises really uh, in the 19th century. So you don't have these sorts of uh, debates or these sorts of confusions about the church being against science uh, before that time. One of the earliest debates was between evolutionary theories and fundamentalist interpretations of the book of Genesis. So if you read Genesis as holding that God made the universe in seven 24-hour periods, uh, and then you accept evolutionary theory, well, there becomes a huge conflict between the two. Some Catholics throughout history, such as St. Ambrose, did interpret the days of creation as seven 24-hour periods. But later saints, such as St. Augustine of Hippo, St. Thomas Aquinas, and St. John Henry Newman, as well as the three most recent popes, have consistently rejected this interpretation. Just as in English, day can mean two different things. So you could mean day, one 24-hour period. But in English, we also use the word day not to mean the 24-hour period, but just uh, some time in the past. So for instance, if I say to you, you know, in my day, when I was in high school, no one had cell phones. No one thinks that I mean that I was in high school for one 24-hour period, right? When I say back in my day, right, that's a way of just saying, you know, sometime in the past, not, not 24 hours. And so the text of Genesis uses day uh, sometimes to mean 24 hours, but often just to mean sometime in the past. So if you understand uh, Genesis properly, then there's no 
a conflict between the evolutionary account of things unfolding over centuries and centuries and millions of years and the days of creation. Christopher said the myth that the church opposes science could also be a misinterpretation of the church's calls for a moral code within the field of science. This is because scientists themselves recognize that science can sometimes go morally off track. Think about the terrible scientific experiments done by uh, Dr. Mengele, the Nazi doctor who in the uh, death camps would do experiments on uh, prisoners. You think of the Tuskegee experiments on African-Americans which everybody now recognizes as morally wrong. And so the church's view would be that um, science can be misused sometimes, and that if you're experimenting on human beings without their consent, like sometimes happens with human embryo experimentation, that that is ethically problematic. Christopher said the church's approach to science is ultimately an extension of a deeper principle. And the deeper principle is that faith and reason are compatible. Faith and reason really are not enemies, but work together. John Paul II put it this way. He said that faith and reason are like two wings that allow the human person to fly up towards the truth. And so as Catholics, we're very, very lucky because we affirm and use both wings. We can use reason as much as we want and understand the natural world and understand science and psychology and anthropology and chemistry. All this, these are very valuable things to know. But we also can use, you might say, the wing of faith. And we can understand the teachings of Jesus and try to live our life in a way that is pleasing to God. So for us, faith and reason really work together in a kind of harmony. And that Catholic view of the harmony of faith and reason is something that's extremely important today and something that I think Catholics can rightly be proud of. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. Stacey Trisankos likes to say that her first title these days is mom. She spends most of her days at home in Texas, full-time with her seven children. There are moments in her day when Stacy will walk outside or look out the window, and you might catch her gazing at the plants and the trees that surround her. The plants and the trees are beautiful in and of themselves, but Stacy's fascination runs a little deeper because she's a scientist. She has a PhD in chemistry. As she looks at those plants and trees, Stacy is thinking about the miracle of photosynthesis taking place right there, right before her own eyes. There are millions and millions of little chloroplasts in those leaves just cranking away, taking CO2 and sunlight and water and changing it into biomass and oxygen, keeping this planet running. And these things are happening with such precision that scientists cannot reproduce it in the lab. And it's so simple. You look out the window and you see this going on at the atomic level everywhere. And when you, when you think with your chemistry glasses, is what I tell my students, you gotta, you gotta have your chemistry glasses on and you gotta not only look at the macroscopic world, you've gotta be thinking in your mind, click, 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 all these reactions are just happening away underneath the surface. 
it, it sounds goofy, but it just moves me to tears sometimes, especially if I'm worried about things. Stacy remembers first learning about photosynthesis back when she was in high school. She always had an incredibly analytical and curious mind. Science, and chemistry in particular, complemented that. But her upbringing in the Baptist church didn't. As I got older, I had so many questions that Baptist teaching, which varies from one church to the next, one person to the next, it it just didn't answer. What is grace? Why do all these other denominations say they're the only ones going to heaven? What does it mean that God is three in one? Stacy had questions, and it seemed like nobody had answers, except science. I was learning about photosynthesis and evolution and chemistry, and science was definitely providing lots of deep answers about nature and the world that I lived in. And so I just I left behind my religion in 1991, the same year that R.E.M. song came out, <laughs> Losing My Religion. I remember that was like my theme song. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Um, I just left it behind and I went off to college. Stacy earned her Ph.D. in chemistry. And then she took a job at the largest chemical company in the world, DuPont in their Lycra spandex labs making polymers for spandex, which is pretty cool when you're a woman. Science had been good to Stacy. She had a lucrative career, and science gave her a lot of answers about the world she lived in. But at some point in her mid-30s, Stacy came to terms with the fact that she just wasn't happy. I had two children, I was single, and I thought, my life is a mess. And science is not going to help me out here. And just basically felt like I hit a brick wall. That, that I did find a lot of truth in science, but I didn't find all the truth. I was at a very low point because I had broken all my relationships and I didn't understand why. I was very alone. And so, for the first time in years... Stacy prayed. Just give me another chance, God. Give you know, I want to. I want to be married. I want to raise children. Um, I I don't need to be a chemist all my life. Stacy met her future husband soon after that. The two got married, and their family grew. I came to a point in my life when I was ready to be open to the truths of faith. My husband and I were living up north in Massachusetts um, in those years. And I said to him, I need to know the truth. You know, like I'm a truth seeker. I, I, need, I need to know what's true. And um, we're having these babies. We need to raise them with a moral code. And science doesn't give you a moral code. And we need to go to church. Stacy said she came to realize that she couldn't approach her faith in the same way that she approached science. I realized fully that when it came time to grant assent to divine revelation, to the dogmas and doctrines of the church, it was an act of my will. I had to say, this is a lot of mystery. There's some things I don't understand, but I'm not going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. First, they tried to return to the Baptist church. And it made me angry. It made me so angry sitting in there listening because I'm a very logical person. And it's like listening to the preacher preach. There were just, I started punching holes in everything he was saying, just like I did when I was a kid. And 
And I remember I had a very strong reaction to it. Like, I'm trying, God, but this is nonsense. (laughs) This is not making any sense. Her husband was raised Catholic, but he wasn't practicing. After their experience at the Baptist church, he suggested they try a Catholic mass. He took me to the church and he went with me to all my RCIA classes. And um, together we, you know, we led each other back into the church for him and into the church for me. I looked at it like doing a laboratory experiment in my life. I'm, I'm going to go into that lab. I'm going to do all the things the church says. And I think if I practice it long enough, I'll start to understand why God told us to do these things. And, and I did. Today, Stacy talks and writes a lot about the connection between faith and science. She says the two are intimately connected. You never need to shun science if you're a Catholic. You, you should be the most thorough materialist if you're Catholic. You should love all things material and in physics and in chemistry. You should love that because you're literally studying the handiwork of God. The sciences explain the world, but Stacy says faith gives it meaning. I teach a course at Seton Hall University called the Catholic Theology of Science. So I turned it around. It's not science or theology. It's the theology of science. Why is science the study of the handiwork of God? It's my pleasure and great joy to be able to tell college students who are science students about this and about how you know modern science even developed because Catholics in the early universities were looking at nature and saying, hey, a rational God created it, so it's probably got order. Um, What can we learn about it? Oh, lo and behold, there's mathematical equations you can apply to this order. How about that? Telling students about this history kind of, I don't know, inoculates them from being confused like I was. Like, I don't want students to come out of college and go through what I went through. I want them to know you don't have to pick science or faith. You need to, if you love science, you need to love your faith even more and let them both guide you so that you have the fullness of the truth. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by John McKeown and Kate Oliveira. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Francis Collins, Christopher Kayser, and Stacey Trisankos. And just remember, never trust an atom. They make up everything. See you guys.